before I begin reading, I hope you'll bear with me. I want to say two things. One is uh, that uh, I was sick last week, and I am grateful that Matthew came and that he preached and that he had a sermon ready. And I am grateful that his message dovetailed so beautifully with what we had been preaching in Matthew. Matthew's gospel, we were preaching in the mission texts where Jesus was sending his disciples out and speaking about the love we should have for the world. And then Matthew came in without collusion with me or anything of the sort. There was no collusion. Uh, Matthew and I had two sermons that just danced very well together by God's grace. It was his plan for me to be sick last week. And so I thank him for that. And uh, hopefully you do as well. Um, Second of all, I'm all better. I feel better. I'm a little bit weak. Uh, But I might start having a coughing fit in the middle of the sermon. Uh, That does not mean I'm still sick. It just means I have a cough. So don't want anybody freaking out if that happens. Uh, Finally, one, I just thought you guys might appreciate an interesting story about Calvin's Geneva. Uh, Back in the 1600s or in the 1500s, in Calvin's Geneva, the, the deacons were equipped with these long sticks that they would use during the service if anybody's cell phone went off during the service. So I just want, we haven't purchased the sticks yet. It's just a nudge. It's just a gentle nudge. Uh, I might have some of the numbers and the, the dates on that wrong, but it's the gist of it's all there. So, uh, Uh, Flannery O'Connor said that the the reason laughter is so important is it opens us up to hearing true good things after we laugh. So maybe we will uh, benefit more from the sermon from that. So I don't have one of those every week, so that's the only one. It's the only time you get them. Um, But let's turn now to God's word. Let's hear from the Lord. Uh, We have two separate texts. They actually uh, intermesh with each other. And yet I want to read them distinctly because we're going to spend time in both of these texts this morning. Uh, And so first I want to read simply one verse from Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 and then moving over to the book of Matthew. So uh, hear now the word of God from Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning that your word would instruct us in your truth. That as we come in our own neediness and our own emptiness and our own 
weariness, that you would fill up all that is lacking in us through faith in your son. That we would see him today and treasure him, that we would never grow weary of reaffirming and rehearing again those fundamental tenets of the faith that have been given to us. Feed us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The early church uh, had to deal with all sorts of interesting accusations from the culture around them. They were accused of things such as cannibalism. Uh, They were accused because they ate the body and drank the blood of the Lord. Uh, They were accused of things such as incest because they would call their husband or wife, brother or sister. Uh, Because uh, of all of these things, the early church dealt with, and many more, uh, vituperative accusations from the culture, from the world around them. And uh, Christians today are really no different. We deal with accusations. Sometimes the accusations are different. Uh, One of the accusations Christians are accused of is having hang-ups about human sexuality. Uh, They say that Christians are obsessed over these things and that they need to lighten up. Uh, At at once, the world tells us that sex is the most important thing in the entire universe, and at the same time, they say it's absolutely no big deal. And uh, they basically want us to say, hey, on the one hand, we don't care at all. We think that sex is no big deal. Now, again, uh, modern people could easily be accused of having their own hang-ups about human sexuality. There's plenty that could be said about the moderns, modern world's flippant views of human sexuality. But one of the points of Christian doctrine and, and belief that modern people point to is their mockery and criticism of the annual Christian obsession with the virginity of Jesus' mother. Um, The world looks at our discussions of the Virgin Mary and they say, you make such a big deal about the fact that Mary was a virgin. And perhaps their two biggest complaints are first that, well, virginity is no big deal. Why do you even care what somebody does with their body? And then second of all, the the complaint is that it's impossible for a virgin to give birth in the first place. So you guys are obsessing over something that doesn't matter, and you're obsessing over something that's impossible in the first place. Now, um, last year, uh, during this same time of year, I addressed that question. I addressed the subject of uh, whether or not a miraculous birth of a child to his mother who had never known a man is actually reasonable or not. And I don't necessarily tread, uh, plan to tread over that ground once again, but I would remind everyone that everyone comes to a text like this today with their own pre-existing opinions about whether or not it is possible for God to cause a young woman who has not known a man to be pregnant. In a universe where God exists, it is no small thing whatsoever to do this, and yet for God, it is a tiny thing. For God, it is as easy as speaking for someone such as Mary to become pregnant. I would submit that it is the world that is closed-minded by assuming that they know for a fact that miracles do not take place and something such as the virgin birth of Mary is an impossibility 
It is a belief of faith that is based upon unprovable assumptions. In other words, the skeptic of these things has a faith of their own, a faith that says, one thing I know for sure, a virgin birth is not possible. But I'm actually more interested in the first complaint, uh, the fact that Mary didn't have sex to the world should be no big deal whatsoever. They say, look, Christians, you're making a mountain out of a molehill by caring about this subject. And so I simply want to push back against that today. And, and I want to suggest that actually it is a really big deal that Mary did not know a man until Jesus' birth. It is important to God. It is important to the church. It is important to reality. It is important to our doctrine of salvation that Jesus was born of a virgin. And hopefully by the end of today's message, you will thank God that Jesus was born of a virgin. And so I want to show you why through this prophecy and then, I, and then, of course, its fulfillment in the book of Matthew. And so let's look at this subject under three points this morning. Uh, a divine sign, a miraculous sign, and a gracious sign. Those are our three points for the outline. First, let's go right to it. This prophecy that Matthew says Jesus fulfills proposes a divine sign. Now, um, I didn't actually put the text of Isaiah 7 in the bulletin today. So if you have your Bibles, you feel free to go to Isaiah chapter 7 because we're going to spend a little time there before we come over to Matthew. Um, and I want us to look at Isaiah 7:14, and I want to start a few verses before what you have written there in the text. I want to begin in verse, verse 10. Uh, because the context here is actually really important. What on earth is Isaiah's prophecy actually talking about? And so let's start reading in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So think of the context here. The context here is King Ahaz. And King Ahaz is struggling to believe that God is going to keep his promise to David. The fear that, that Ahaz has <laughs> is that Israel's enemies really are going to crush Israel once and for all, the house of David is going to be destroyed. That's the fear. And if that happens, that means the promises that God made to David being broken. And so the prophecy that he gives in Isaiah 7:14, the text that we read this morning, is God's answer to that fear. And his, his answer, his plan is to answer that fear by means of a sign involving a virgin becoming pregnant. That's how he's going to answer Ahaz's doubt. Now, there have been plenty in, in the recent life of the church, they have found the virgin birth to be a source of embarrassment. Um, the idea that a, a child could be born to a woman who had never known a man is, is, is hard for some to handle. Um, and so you even find folks who you might otherwise think of as being in the more uh, theologically conservative circles uh, even some of them seem to be suggesting that we need to soften the hard edges 
of this prophecy from Isaiah. Um, some have suggested that when it says the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, it's not using the word for a woman who has not known a man. Instead, it's just using the word for young woman. It's not so specific that it's saying she hasn't known a man. And so the passage, so they say, only claims that a young woman would conceive and bear a son, not an actual virgin. Now, first, I have some complaints with this reading of the prophecy, right? If, if, if that's what's God, what God is saying, if God is saying that a woman is going to get pregnant, how on earth would such a mundane prophecy answer the challenge, the steep challenge that Israel faces in this moment? See, by the time of Isaiah, the line of King David had been ruling in Israel for 250 years. And God's enemies uh, in the surrounding Israel, they weren't just threatening the government of Israel. The very line of David, the very promise of God was on the line. Is it even remotely possible that God would break his promise of ensuring that the line of David would persist forever and ever? That's what's at stake. What's at stake is David, David's son, God's promise to David. Is, is God a promise breaker? That's what's at stake here. That's the, that's the doubt that's in the mind of King Ahaz. It's what he wants to know. God, will you abandon Israel? That's why this prophecy is important. Everything hangs on it. And God's answer is one that has to answer the doubts of King Ahaz in this moment when he is surrounded by a nation that could easily destroy them forever. So what does God do? He tells Ahaz, essentially, that he's going to bring a sign from the outer limits of the miraculous. A virgin will get pregnant. A woman who never knew a man will get pregnant. Now, this is why I say that the softer reading of the passage uh, doesn't help anything. It's because young women get pregnant all the time. Young women get pregnant all the time. Even in Isaiah's day, women got pregnant. The whole world, if you don't need it, you don't, you don't even need it proven to you, right? The whole world is full of people who are here because a young woman got pregnant. Everybody in this room, some of you, this may come as a shock, especially if you're younger. If you're alive and in this room, somebody got pregnant and now you're here, <laughs> right? We're only here because a young woman got pregnant. How is that supposed to shock Ahaz out of his complacency and remind him to trust that another woman on planet earth will get pregnant? How is that special? Think of how dramatically God normally reassures his people in scripture when everything is on the line. Look, think of God's ordinary way of, of doing this, of reassuring his people. Think of King, King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah in Isaiah chapter 38, God shows him that he's going to add 15 years to his life. And he says to God, how, how do I know that this is going to happen? And God gives him this reassurance in Isaiah 38, 8, by doing what? By causing the sundial to go backward 10 steps, right? Think of, think of how huge that is. It's so important that Hezekiah know he's going to live another 15 years that God shakes 
heaven and earth. Palmer Robertson says it like this. Try to imagine all the cosmic implications of a reversal of the movement of the sundial. The earth's rotation suddenly stops, reverses, and starts again. But in the meantime, what happens to all the myriad of objects on the earth's surface, not to speak of the ocean, ocean's depths? He doesn't answer those things. God answers those things, right? God knows. But here's, here's the reason I'm talking about Hezekiah and this passage about Ahaz. When God reassures his people in hard-pressed situations, he uses miracles. He uses big promises. He uses big, surprising, shocking things. The virgin birth of a woman, uh, to a, of a child to a woman who is still a virgin, would be that kind of miracle. The sundial moving backwards kind of miracle. And the promise of Jesus, which we're going to look more in depth next week, but the promise of Jesus answers the fears and the anxieties of Ahaz. Right? The line of David, Ahaz, will not end because Mary is from the line of David and her son will be an answer to your fear that David's line would ever end. You do not need to be afraid, Ahaz. Behold the child. He's coming. I will make sure that that line never ends. That's what God is telling him. This is still a hard promise to believe. And so this miracle is called for. There are two words in the Hebrew for a young woman and a married young woman. Uh, there's the word Alma and then there's the word Betula. Um, the word Alma is what Isaiah uses here. Uh, Alma does refer to young women. But here's the thing. The word Alma never refers to a married young woman. Nowhere in scripture will you find the word Alma applied to a young woman who is married. Uh, it is an unmarried young woman that God says will be pregnant in this prophecy. Um, Martin Luther once offered 100 gold pieces to anyone who could show him that Alma ever refers to a married young woman. Uh, when somebody said, Luther, where are you going to get 100 gold pieces? He said, God knows. Uh, but apparently history has shown he did not need to worry about it. Um, because Alma never refers to a married woman. Um, this prophecy then is not a reference to Hezekiah's wife. So I'm trying to read it that way. They say, ah, this is Hezekiah's wife or this is Isaiah's wife. Well, Hezekiah's wife is married and Isaiah's wife is married. It's not saying that Isaiah's wife or Hezekiah's wife will get pregnant. It is speaking further and deeper into time. It's speaking of another virgin, another virtuous but unmarried woman who would become pregnant. My encouragement to you, let's not soften this prophecy. Let's not try to make it less shocking. This is a prophecy that's meant to be shocking. Right? Something that could only be accomplished by the Lord himself. That's the plan. So this, this really was a virgin who did not know a man. It had to be something that only God could do. That's the point. The, the supernatural character of the birth of Jesus is important. It's not secondary. It's not something that you can take or leave. It doesn't matter whether she was a virgin or not. It is meant to be an integral feature of the amazement of the Messiah's arrival. 
Uh, Here's how Donald McLeod says it. He says, the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of the incarnation. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding further. The virgin birth stands posted at the guard of the door of the mystery of the incarnation. The point of God doing this himself is so that we know that the ministry of Jesus is not simply mankind uh, rising to the occasion, lifting ourselves up by our bootstraps. That is not what the ministry of Jesus is. Instead, the birth of Jesus is something that can only happen by God's doing. It is a divine sign. Second, Second, this passage proposes that the birth of Jesus was also a miraculous sign. Um, is, there, is there more going on here than just giving a sign? Is there something important and integral in Jesus' being born of a virgin, aside from the shock of it, something more than just the surprise of it, the difficulty of it? Is there more to it? Uh, why might it have been necessary that this child be born of a virgin? Well, the answer is found in in something we see in the life of Jesus, and that is his sinlessness. But first, we need to go back further than the virgin birth. Uh, We need to understand what human beings are. We know that God created human beings as very good. He calls us very good in the book of Genesis when he created us. And yet we also know that Adam rebelled in Genesis 3. And we know that he disobeyed God's command And when that happened, Adam and Eve experienced a changed relationship with God. They experienced a changed relationship with each other, uh, even they and their children, right? When they finally had children, what did they do? They murdered each other. Um, They had a sin nature just like their parents and every human being who was born after the fall had a fallen and sinful human nature just like the first Adam. This is part of what makes the birth of Jesus so shocking because he was born of a woman who was a sinner and yet he was very much unlike us in one very important respect. Even though he was born of a woman, he had no sin. We see this overwhelmingly in scripture. You look at the life, you look at the ministry of Jesus. He never shows any consciousness of sin. Jesus never asks forgiveness. Jesus never prays for forgiveness. He calls other people to repent. He never models repentance for anyone to see. Um, We can't look at his life to see what repentance looks like. We can look to Jesus as a model for all sorts of things. You can never find a model prayer of repentance from Jesus, right? He doesn't show you himself how you're supposed to repent. He says instead in John 8, 46, which of you convicts me of sin? What a crazy thing to say to a crowd of people unless it's true, right? I, I try to please God with my life. I would never challenge any of you to accuse me of sin. Uh, I don't have the guts. It would not, would not end well for me. Um, that's just, you don't want anyone to call your bluff on that. Uh, in John 15, 10, 
Jesus claimed to have kept all of the Father's commands. Just think of, think of the temerity of that. To claim that you kept all of the Father's commands. Um, in Matthew 3.15, he claimed that he was fulfilling all righteousness. Could you imagine fulfilling all righteousness and claiming that you did? Jesus didn't see himself as a sinner. He didn't see himself as a transgressor. Um, if you go to the book of Hebrews, we're going to spend some time in the book of Hebrews next week and the week after. And you go to the book of Hebrews chapter 4, it says that Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And in chapter 7, Hebrews says that Jesus was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and that he offered himself without blemish to God. Um, Peter, in his own letter, calls Jesus the lamb without blemish or spot. Um, this was a man who spent three intimate years with Jesus. Uh, our elders learn a lot about me just by sharing a hotel room with me for a week at General Assembly. Um, they would learn even more about me if I had to camp out with them for three years. Um, if anyone knew the truth about the sinlessness of Jesus, it would be Peter, right? And, and Peter writes that he had no blemish. First John chapter 2, John calls him Jesus the righteous and says that in him there is no sin. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that Jesus knew no sin. Even when Paul does talk about Jesus becoming incarnate, he doesn't say that he took on sinful flesh. Instead, the most he's willing to say is that he appeared in the likeness of sinful flesh in Romans 8.3. And don't forget what happened when Jesus went before the Roman judge. Pilate said he could find no fault in him. I'm just going to submit something that Pilate had had a lot of people brought before him. And you could always find fault in somebody that came before Pilate. Something. Even when the, the Jewish leadership raged at Jesus, what did they do? They had to manufacture everything that they accused him of. Or they had to twist good things that he said into wicked things. Do you get the picture yet? This child was born of a woman, and yet he was born with no sin. I'm going to quote Donald McLeod again. He says, nowhere in the structure of his being was there any sin. Satan had no foothold in him. There was no lust. There was no affinity for sin. There was no proclivity to sin. There was no possibility of temptation from within. In no respect was he fallen, and in no respect was his nature corrupt. End quote. Let's say you're with me there. Let's say we're together. Jesus was without sin. How does that connect to the virgin birth? Well, we know that Jesus was not born of the seed of Joseph. He was born of the seed of Mary. Uh, Luke 1.35 explains as much as we can probably know about this mysterious event. Um, the angel speaks to Mary in Luke 1.35, and he says that the Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Those are the interesting ver verbs there, right? Come upon you, overshadow you. Therefore, 
the angel says, therefore the child to be born will be called holy. So the angel, in his words, directly connects the holiness, if I might translate, the sinlessness of Jesus. He connects the sinlessness of Jesus with the virgin birth. Right? Because the spirit overshadowed her, the child was called holy. And so you have these verbs here about what the spirit did. Overshadow, come upon. I'm going to be honest. Those don't fill in very much for me. Those are, those are verbs. The Holy Spirit did something. They don't answer our questions necessarily. But I, I think they at least give us an inkling of how it is that Jesus was a sinless man. I think the best we can say without importing our own assumptions is that the creative and consecrating power of the Holy Spirit created and sanctified the human nature that the Son assumed in the incarnation. That is as specific as I think we can get. Isaiah prophesied that the true sign of hope for Israel would be the birth of this child to the virgin. I want you to see that we should neither see the virgin birth as a source of embarrassment, nor should we see the virgin birth as an optional, non-essential issue. Much like we would not see the resurrection of Jesus as an optional article of faith, we should not see the virgin birth as something that is neither here nor there. Why? Because our Savior was sinless. And if he wasn't, then he wasn't our Savior. The virgin birth is integral to the sinlessness of Jesus. That's why Isaiah links the virginity of the woman with the redemption that her son will bring. Some people are comfortable with the sinlessness of Jesus, but they're not comfortable with the virgin birth. Um, A.B. Bruce puts it like this. He says, a sinless man is as much a miracle as a virgin birth is a miracle. One is certainly not more outrageous than the other. Are you grateful for a sinless Savior? Then thank God for the miraculous sign of the virgin birth. Now third this morning, it's not only a divine sign, it's not only a miraculous sign, it's also a gracious sign. See, the birth of this child is a gracious sign because of what it's meant to accomplish, which is salvation. I mentioned before that Matthew links the virginity of the woman with the redemption that her child will bring. Look what, look what Matthew's statement is in verse 21. He says to, to Joseph, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So notice the, the tight connection here, right? That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, he will save his people from their sins. Right? There is a salvific purpose to these things. I take for granted we're sinners. Um, scripture testifies to it. Uh, as Chesterton once said, it's the one Christian doctrine that's easily empirically proven. Um, just look around and nobody's going to argue with you. Right? <laughs> sin, is, sin is real. And, and that means that we have done wrong it means that God is right to judge us for our sin, and it means that we need to be saved. Someone needs to take the punishment that we deserve, and we need to be forgiven. 
We need to be saved. We need a savior. The reason why this child in the prophecy is born of the virgin is because he is intended to save. He has a mission and his mission is saving people from their sins, which is why his name is Jesus. Uh, The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Jesus's name doesn't mean Yahweh is a great teacher. His name doesn't mean Yahweh the good man. His name doesn't mean Yahweh the great moral instructor. His name doesn't mean Yahweh the great example. His name is specific to his mission. Yahweh saves. And through his birth and through his life and through his ministry, God will indeed save his people from their sins. So the the purpose of Jesus' advent was not to give us warm Christmas feelings, to warm our hearts with the, the coziness of the season, even though I like those things. He came to deal with sin. He came for bloody work. He came to heal us by his stripes. He came to die. He came to die in the place of sinners, sinners like you and me. So my question to you this morning is this. Have you been so fixated on the nostalgia and the sweetness of the child that you've displaced why the child came? It's very easy to do. Um, You know, over here, the thought of a warm, snuggly child in a wintry nativity is, is, is irresistible. Uh, something about it just gets to you. Over here, on the other hand, is the sto- where the story ends with his body bloody and broken, his flesh torn, his own heart full of dread of fatherly abandonment. That's where the story is leading. That's where the incarnation goes to. Even unbelievers and skeptics on some level kind of think of the nativity as something that's harmless, right? They say, what's the harm in it? Where's the harm in letting these, children, these Christians celebrate the birth of this child? But the death and resurrection of Jesus become the true stumbling block. Right? The idea that we need someone sacrificed in our place is offensive. Uh, the idea that someone else could stand in our place to rescue us from sin is, is offensive. Um, the idea that you and I have anything wrong with us in the first place that need to be forgiven is, is offensive. That's too much for the world. And yet this child lived and died to save his people from their sins. The child is born. A stumbling block is laid. You don't have to stumble over him, though. This year and every year, actually every, every week, really, uh, the truth is set before you time and time again. Do not put off placing your faith in the sun. How many Christmases will you live through? I remember talking with a parishioner named Maggie Kahn. Uh, Maggie, a precious saint, had no eyesight in one of her eyes, and she was constantly in dread of losing her sight in the other eye. And uh, I sat down with her and spoke with her once, and she said something to me in passing. You know, most people would just miss it, but it stuck with me. She said, I've celebrated 90 Christmases. And I don't know why, but 90 doesn't sound like a lot. If you say you're 90 years old, sounds like a lot. 90 Christmases doesn't sound like a lot. I think it's because a Christmas is a day, and a year is 365 days, right? (laughs) She said, I've celebrated 90 Christmases. And I remember thinking, what an interesting way of putting it. And then I thought, wait... 
life is awfully short. <laughs> life is short. It will go by in a blink. Only a certain number of Christmases, and eventually it will be your last. And if you're the sort to, to come to church a few times a year, especially, and you have a habit of putting off really resting in Jesus and, and being his disciple and taking being his disciple seriously, perhaps you tell yourself, one day, someday, I will take the call of Jesus seriously. I will see myself as a disciple. I will follow him closely. I will devote my life to him. He will be my Lord, not just somebody I admire. Maybe you've been putting it off. How many Christmases do you think the Lord will give you? How much longer can you put it off for? Um, some of you who are younger, you might get 70 more Christmases. Some of you might have 20 or 30 Christmases. For some of you, this could be your last Christmas. Not to go all Jonathan Edwards on you, but it could be. How many more Christmases do you have? How many more can you say next year? The real answer is you don't know. Life is too uncertain. God knows the truth. God knows the number. The numbers of your hairs are counted. He has numbered your years. He has a number written in his book. He knows what it is. The question you are responsible to answer is not what is that number. The question you're responsible to answer is have you placed your faith in the one who came and was born sinless and lived and died to save his people from their sins? Have you put your trust in him? That is the question you are responsible for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you were born of a virgin. We are thankful that you came into this world in such a miraculous, unexpected, and special way that only God could have achieved for us. We thank you that you were unstained by sin. We thank you that you really could be our spotless, unblemished Savior. That we could know forgiveness because you were our spotless lamb. We pray these things in Jesus' name.